0: We get the second scene in heaven this morning, Uh, a fresh accusation, more evidence, and another verdict this morning, this glorious court case, uh, this glorious terrifying court case that's taking place in heaven. This morning we want to consider the reality of holding fast uh, to God in the midst of sorrows, even while we are being held fast by God in the midst of sorrows and struggles. I want to read to you this morning, Job chapter 2, and we're actually going to read from verses 1 all the way down through 10. It's wrong there on the screen. Um, And so follow along your Bibles with me this morning as I read, Job chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he'll give for his life. But stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh, he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The figures of speech are used to get people's attention and drive a point home. Uh, commonly, one common one in English language is hyperbole. And that's really common in a number of languages. It's exaggerated speech. You say something to exaggeration to make an effect. Famously, Jesus does this uh, when he is teaching and preaching. And he, uh, one example is he says you should pluck out your eye or cut off your hand if they would prevent you from going into heaven. Better to go uh, through life wh- with one less, one less eye and one less hand than go to hell whole. Jesus isn't actually saying go take a hatchet or a spoon and carve your eye out or cut your hand off. He's emphasizing the terror of hell, and hell is so bad you'd rather go through life lame uh, than go into hell whole. It's, it's exaggerated speech. It's a figure of speech intended to get our attention. And there are other figures of speech, and one of them that shows up in Hebrew uh, that doesn't really find as much of a place in English is, is what we would call a list plus one. And some 38 times in the Old Testament you have this kind of figure of speech where a list is given, these three things I say, yea, these four. Then about 38 times that shows up. Maybe one of the most famous happens in Proverbs chapter 6. In Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, the, the wisdom author says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, I'm not going to give you the other 37 examples. But I do want to point out the way it works in the Bible, to make a point to you this morning. First of all, all the things in the list communicate the same thing. These are all things that God hates, and they're all things that are an abomination to him. It just is a figure of speech to kind of emphasize. So they all fall under that. Uh, so it's not that these six things he hates and this last one's an abomination, they're all a part of that list. Secondarily, though, they build to the end. Now, they don't necessarily build in how much God hates them, but in this figure of speech, the way it would work, the last thing you listed would kind of be the biggest impact or maybe the worst thing or the biggest blessing if you were listing blessings, right? Um, if you were to say these, these three things about my spouse are a blessing, yea, these four, right? Um, you probably wouldn't end with they make coffee for me in the morning. That's a blessing. That's, that's a good blessing. It's a good gift from God. But that might be number one. Uh, it, maybe number four would be they've been patient with me for 20 years or, or whatever it is. And that's a big one, right? Because they, now they've got to put up with your mess, your nonsense. And so they all communicate the same thing, but they all build. And so in that list in Proverbs, it's, it's stunning when you get to the end that the one he ends with is one who sows discord, Among brothers. And so that's more, it's it's getting more emphasis than lying, it's getting more emphasis than pride to divide relationships is a big deal. And so this is the way these lists work. Now I want to say that to you because as I've been wrestling through the book of Job and and I and I I think that's the best word, right? You study the book, but you wrestle through the book of Job. It, every week, the studying is rich, and it's, it's so encouraging, it's so hard. It feels like Jacob wrestling with, with God all night, every every week. And that's a good thing, that's, 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 that's good. I'm not complaining, I'm loving that, but it's hard work. And in wrestling through it, I, I was coming to this point, and I began to think about the difficulty of of trusting God, and, and because that's what we see from Job here, particularly in chapters 1 and 2 in a very overt way, and we'll see from chapters 3 on in a very different way. But We see this clinging to God, uh, this gripping fast onto God, and, and it's just, frankly, astounding and scary. Um, because when we know our own hearts... I've yet to meet a Christian, and, and, if, and if you're here this morning, this this would be you, um, please let me know. But I've personally yet to meet a Christian who, even as confident as you are in God's rescue of you and his salvation of you, and I'm, I'm there, I'm 100% there, would not be terrified of these kinds of things in your life. I, I, like, I'm just being honest. That's just terrifying. This level of sorrow, this accumulation of hurts, is just makes you look at Job and say, how on earth are you responding with this level of trust, with this grip on God? And so, let me put these together, this list plus one. And so, one of the things I did personally in my life this week is I began thinking through, and and I thought through it this way. There there are three things in following Christ that are cross-carryingly painful, and yet four that seem too weighty for my journey. Being generous to the ungrateful. I struggle with that. It's hard. Maintaining a forgiving spirit toward the unrepentant. Ugh. I don't like doing that. I don't want to do it. I like to preach to them in the shower and in my car. Everywhere in between at 2 o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep. Staying fervent in pursuing Christ over a long time. I find seasons in my life where I am zealous, passionate, ambitious towards chasing after Jesus. And I find other seasons in my life where it feels like nothing but pure discipline to spend time in the Word and in prayer. But fourth, clinging to trust in inexplicable pain as Darren mentioned it this morning, I like it, puzzling pain. Seems so hard, so difficult. We ended last week with the idea of gripping tightly to trusting God in the face of pain. But like some cruel sadist, pain plus time feels like someone is peeling our fingers off of the rope one at a time until it feels like we can't hold on any longer. Now, we know theologically, we know biblically, the core truth is this. Uh, I, I am I'm not generous to the ungrateful because I am a generous person. I can only be generous to the ungrateful because I've received generosity from God in the work of the Spirit. I cannot maintain a forgiving spirit or the unrepentant other than the fact that I've first been forgiven in God. I, I cannot stay fervent in pursuing Christ other than the fact that Christ pursues me. And I could not maintain trust in the face of inexplicable pain, puzzling pain, apart from the fact of God's good work in me. Job's going to preach to us this morning. And the truth, our big idea this week is God holds us fast, yet let us strengthen our grip of trust. When I worked construction, did drywall for a number of years, uh, there was these two guys, and they, I, I don't know, some of you will know this reference, some of you won't. That's, that's okay, you, you're not cultural unaware if you don't but back when i was a kid the muppets were a big deal and we'd watch the muppet show there's the two guys that set up the two old cranky dudes that sat up in the balcony or whatever the box seats and they're always ah, ha, ha, laughing at each other they thought they were hilarious right and, and these two drywall finishers reminded me of those two cranky guys. Every time I went to see them, I'd sit in my truck and just prepare myself before I went in. Because they had dry humor. They'd always make fun of me. They always thought they were hilarious. They're laughing at their own jokes. And you're just like, okay, I've got to go deal with these two yokels again, right? Um, and so I remember going in one time. And the one guy, he said, Steve, how strong is your grip? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I'm like 20. I'm like, I don't know. What, whatever. And he goes, can you do this? And he went over to a drywall bucket of mud, five-gallon bucket of mud, and they have places where you can cut them on the side to pull the lid off and then you can seal it back up. He hadn't cut it, hadn't done anything to it, and he reached down with just his fingers and he picked it up by the lid and shook it, just gripping it with his fingers until the top popped off. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's, first of all, painful. Number, second of all, that's grip strength stupid. Like, that's just crazy. So I tried it, not happening. Ain't happening. And then he did it with one hand. And, like, he thinks he's, you know, and I'm like, okay. And there was another time I went there. And what it was is this guy had spent 20, 30 years gripping drywall knives, holding them with mud, spackling compound. And so his grip strength was crazy. I saw him one time reach up, and he grabbed the joist just with his fingers and hung there for minutes. Just grip strength. Like, he's... Like, that's the kind of guy, if he shook your hand hard, he's going to break some bones. It was, it was crazy, his grip strength. The only other guy I've ever seen like that is my uncle who was a truck driver who had hands like bricks. And it just, I don't know, it just scary level grip strength. And I knew I did not have this grip strength, right? Like, you grab the joystick, you just, like, slide right off. Right down you go. This guy had crazy grip strength. I read Job, and I see a man clinging to God in a way... That just seems so far beyond anything possible, and so I want to learn from him. I want to sit at the feet of the prophet Job. Peter calls him a prophet later, <laughs> and I want to learn from him. And so let's work our way through the text this morning, uh, kind of verse by verse, and understand what's going on here. First of all, we've got this brand new accusation. Let me reread these verses. We'll see the scene in heaven. I'll maybe just make some comments as we go along, and then we'll hit the heavenly response and. And what's hatred and love? Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Remember the, the scene here. You have the throne room of heaven. It's how God is um, ruling over the economy of the world that he has fashioned. You have these heavenly beings. We broadly call them angels. Uh, they clearly have different roles. Some are worshiping, some are his messengers, some are the army of God, excuse me, some are the choir of heaven. Some of them, though, have particular jobs and regions in which they rule over. And so they come and give report to God. God already knows he's omniscient, he's omnipotent. This is the way he's chosen to rule, like a king rules. And so they come, they give reports, he gives directions, they go their way. Well, then you have the fall of Satan. Uh, and a third of the, these angelic hosts. These angelic hosts would have had all kinds of roles. Some of them would have been messengers. Some of them would have been soldiers. Some of them would have been rulers. Some of them end up directly in hell, we know from the New Testament. Some of them are yet roaming the world. Some of them will be sent to hell later. A whole group of demons ask Jesus when he's casting them out of a man, please don't send us to hell. Right? So w- there's so much we don't know. But what we see here is this throne room of heaven seen. The king is there, and in among them the adversary, that's what Satan means here, comes. In among them. So he has access into that throne room. Don't let that bother you. They don't do anything unless God permits them to do it. Satan shows up in the throne room again. We have no idea how much time has passed. The Bible doesn't tell us, doesn't indicate to us. We just know that now there's a follow-up. The Lord said to the adversary or to the Satan, from where have you come, Satan answered the Lord, said from going to and forth in the earth, from walking up and down on it. Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He now adds one additional thing that he hadn't really said before. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited him, me against him to destroy him without reason. That is indicative of some passage of time. Not just the immediate, but there's some time. We don't know how long, but there's been enough time where it's not just the day of. And God points out his integrity. And very simply, we could put it this, this way, the way, this way Hebrew rabbis would put it, his outside matched his inside. That's what it means. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. The argument is this, Job is still following you because he still has his health. That's what the accusation is. He would, he would abandon you if he lost his health. Stretch out your hand, touch his bones flesh, he will curse you to your face. It's the worst sin that you see show up in the book of Job. You might remember Job said he would offer sacrifices lest one of his children had cursed God. Later his wife's going to say, curse God. Satan's accusation is he would say, curse God. It's the worst sin. It's total abandonment. Turn your back on God. It's apostasy. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. So chapter one has ended, right? We had first accusation. Job is a gold-digging blessing seeker. He's in it to win it take away the winnings and he'll abandon you and god is an insecure selfish love manipulator unlovable manipulator so god is so unlovely he's got to pay people to love him with with good gifts so kill the gifts and take away the blessings and you won't love job and he won't love you that's the accusation chapter one so all the gifts are gone all the money's gone, all the wealth's gone, all till ch- ten children are killed, and he gets all the information in one moment, and yet Job doesn't curse God. And so you have accusation, evidence, verdict. The verdict is given, and all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So this is just second round. This is, might be thought of as appeals court. Satan's response, the heavenly response, is telling. God's response has been, Job has not sinned. Job has his integrity. Satan's response is very revealing. Job, Satan doesn't bring up Job. It's, it's comical. Um, he, he doesn't want to reference the fact that he lost, obviously. God brings him up. Satan doesn't acknowledge that he's wrong. Instead, he wants another shot at this. This fresh accusation actually belittles the sorrowing suffering of Job, Job by declaring that Job would do anything for his own health. Really? Really? I mean, that's pretty minimizing to the sorrow. You ever had somebody minimize your sorrow? Right? Anything you say, they've had it worse. Anything you've experienced, they've experienced deeper hurt. I just want to pause in this moment and say, don't take that role. Right? The things that would be overwhelming to my children shouldn't be overwhelming to me. I'm 47. lived a lot longer, experience a lot more. But it would not bless my children to look at them and say, that's no big deal, when they're really hurting. That would be unloving, unkind, unchristlike. like But unfortunately, Christians do that to one another all the time so let's just take one deep hurt example right I've seen um, I I think one common one in our culture that church does a really bad job with is infertility and I've seen uh, some ladies just express their hurt of infertility and I actually read an article by a lady one time who said yes but they haven't experienced five miscarriages like I have I just want to be clear I think miscarriages is a horrendous trial. But I also think infertility is a horrendous trial, and I think where the failure is is trying to compare hurt to hurt, and thereby minimize or maximize hurt. And instead, kind of like if you take your kids to the shore and you let them play in, in the water at Hilton Head, or, or <laughs> the Redneck Riviera, wherever else you go, right? Um, the wave that would knock me down is, would drown my kids when they're toddlers, but the waves that would knock them down at two and three wash across my knees. And so sometimes where you're at in life, sometimes maturity, sometimes age, sometimes just the way you're wired, things are going to hurt you more than hurt others or hurt you less than they hurt others. The worst thing you can do, though, is enter into, and I don't know how else to put it, a satanic kind of mindset that belittles and demeans the hurt and the trials of others. That is not compassionate care. And it's not love. But that's exactly Satan's response. I mean, isn't that pretty stunning? Skin for skin. His his perspective is, you know, Job's really okay with having lost all of his servants, who he clearly would have cared for, all of his earthly belongings, and all ten of his kids. As long as i got my health, I'm okay. Baloney. Let's talk about what real hatred and love is in the midst of suffering. I want to remind you of that wonderful little phrase that I shared with you at the start of the study in Job from Johnny Tata. God allows that which he hates to accomplish what he loves. We have to hold this tension in our lives and in the book of Job. God does not delight in the pain and suffering that Job is going through. He is not Job's tormentor. He's, as one commentator helpfully wrote, he is Job's good good shepherd in the midst of his suffering. Satan is not some philosophical giant here. His case is lost. Job is as honest and as loving and as holy as God has declared him to be. Would Job have traded all of his health to get everything else from God? What good father would say this, take my child, just give me my health? I've never met one. I mean, I know that there are abusive, horrible dads out there that would say that. I know that. And, and, I, and sadly, if you had that kind of parent, I, I'm stunned and and saddened with you. But I don't know, I've actually met lots of parents whose child has been deeply afflicted with some disease or some horrific condition, or or maybe not even a child, their spouse even, who hasn't at some point prayed, God, I would trade places with them. Would you just take their pain, give it to me? I've yet to personally meet and interact with one that would say, yeah, take my kid just as long as I don't get sick. It's hard to wrap our minds around that, isn't it? But that's exactly what Satan is accusing him of. Man, I remember, I remember feeling that with my little brother. My little brother, Andrew, I talked to me yesterday. Um, I love get, connecting with him. I remember when he was a little boy, and we had the wood-burning stove in our basement, and, and we had the fire going, and my dad would get it so hot, the elbow coming out of the wood-burning stove would glow orange. My, that's my dad, right? Like, my dad was the original Tim the Toolman Man t- Taylor. Everything could be more powerful, hotter, bigger, faster. Rah, 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 he loved it, right? So he'd get this thing going. You crack open the little dials on the front of the wood-burning stove. It sounded like a freight train coming as it's sucking for air. And one time, we, it's, it's a winter night, and and snows outside. We got the wood-burning stove, and we would we would roast hot dogs on the wood-burning stove. It's like, the coolest thing ever. And my little brother, Andrew, come running over to where it was at, and and I was there. My older brother Tim was there. But my little brother Andrew's like two or three, and he tripped and he hit the outside of one of those doors and slammed it shut on the stove. And we heard the sizzling of the burning of the flesh of his hands. And ran him to the sink, dumping cold water on his hands. And I remember, I'm just his brother. I'm not his dad. But as his brother, I remember prayed even in that moment, God. Take his pain and give it to me. Right? Like, but Satan's accusation is as long as Job has his health. (laughs) It's stunning. The diminishing and the demeaning of his pain and his agony here. So let's be clear. Satan is serving his own purposes of causing pain, sorrow, and strife. Satan is not some philosophical giant. He's not some questioning apologist. He is serving his own ends. What we have God in his sovereignty doing is superintending even over Satan serving his own ends to accomplish a greater glory. Satan himself is an enemy who wanders the earth. Why? Why is he going to and from the earth? 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to consume us. He wants to shred us like a lion going after the weakest. We learn later that he devises schemes, strategies. He sits and concocts ways specifically to harm God's children, 2 Corinthians 2.11. We learn that he only seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. Here on Palm Sunday, we understand that this week, 2,000 years ago, he actually possessed Judas to drive the betrayal in the crucifixion of christ luke 22 3 i'm not even sure that he had to have possessed judas to get it done i think satan just wanted that much of a part in it judas was already bent for money right you go you bet read back through the new testament gospels seeing who judas was judas is the one griping when a woman worships jesus spending money he's the one that holds the money bags we find out later he's stealing money from it. judas was all about the money he sells jesus out for 30 pieces of silver like he is money driven But Satan is actually possessing him. Whether our suffering is heavenly ordered like Job's, whether our suffering is a result of living in a sin-fallen world under Satan's control as the prince of the power of the air, or whether our suffering is part of the natural course of our lives under the providence of God, we can know that Satan's part is only to do us damage. Satan can't attack God. So he assaults what God loves dearly, his image bearers. For God, his love is pure, strong, initiating, sacrificial, and steady. And so he's let loose. If you read slowly through Job, if you somehow find a way to distance yourself from your knowledge of the story ahead of time, you get to this point. You get to this end of verse 6. Behold, he is in your hand, only spares life. And you are rightly terrified of what's about to come. Like, what else is there? I mean, if we're real honest, if Steve John's real honest with you, maybe you're not with me on this, and that's fine. I don't, but I can tell you, I, at this point, I'd be saying, God, just kill me. Just take me. I mean, what else can there be? But there is yet a deeper pain to go through. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak shall we receive good from god and shall we not receive evil and all this job did not sin with his lips there are new physical wounds the primary presentation of job's affliction is this presence of all over painful boils and sores and the only relief is as he sits in the trash heap that would have been outside of his house ash heap Um, he sits there and that's where you would throw pottery, junk, whatever, and so he's sitting in the trash. It's a way of saying, I'm trash. Um, This predates Mosaic Law. This predates it of having any holy inclination or association. And he would just take these broken pieces of pottery and just scrape these boils. There are pictures I could have shown you, and I chose not. The, The open sores, the suffering that's going on, it's difficult to imagine the pain, the swelling, the weeping of these burst-open boils, the scars that would be a result of this. Verse 12, uh, if we were to fast forward, says something interesting. When his friends show up, says, When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Uh, the language there is actually eerily similar to the language used to describe the image of Jesus in Isaiah, whereas he would have looked inhuman, more like an animal than a person at this point. The rest of the book of Job gives us more descriptions of what he is experiencing over the time as this goes on. Job 7 verse 5 tells us that there are maggots that keep getting into his open sores. While we're here at the beginning of his suffering, later in Job 7, it seems to indicate there were continual rounds of these boils that kept coming. It's not one round. It's not like he was suddenly covered with boils. He scrapes them, he's sore, and he's healing. But it was a persistent condition that had somehow occurred. More information is given in Job 30.30. His skin is described as being black. In other words, some of the skin as a result of his condition, as the boils would break open, as they'd weep, And pus would flow from his body that it would actually kill some of the skin. And so he's covered in dead and decaying skin. It's what's attracting the maggots that keep eating. Scabs keep forming instead of any kind of healing. There are fresh infections that keep occurring in Job's body that Job 30 tells us that he's feverish. We've all been feverish, right? We've all had that moment, that experience where you were burning up but you can't get warm either because of the chills that rack your body. He's out there laying alone on the ash heap, shaking and shivering, too uncomfortable to cover up with clothes because of the pressing against these open sores. And yet he can't ever get warm. It certainly helps to explain the exhaustion in Job 7.4 as he describes his inability to get any sleep. Job's not stoic in his suffering. Job 16.16 16 describes his face as always flushed, bags under his eyes, and a face just worn from weeping and crying. I think if you've suffered at all, you know what it's like to suffer when there doesn't seem to be any more tears. And you can't cover it, right? Like, you ever had one of those moments like you've had a breakdown and you're crying, and then you've got to go see somebody? And like you put like cold washcloths on your face, and you know, ladies get some makeup you try to put on there. Usually somebody says something really helpful. You look really rough. Usually bless your soul, right? Job's condition is just shockingly bad. The physical toil this would have taken on him. When you've gone through extreme grief or or had experienced trauma like what Job has experienced here. If you were to go to a modern doctor, what they would give you is a sleep aid. That's what they would tell you to do. they try to get you to just sleep, to try to get some time, and Job has access to no kind of modern medicine. No physicians are coming to see him. No one is caring for him, and this, this leads us not just from the, the painful effects, but to the mental effects. Job 7, it describes nightmares that he's experiencing. He says it this way in Job 7, when I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. What's he, what are his nightmares? His nightmares have become his life. Like literally the worst thing that you or I would ever dream of is what he's living. You ever had a nightmare that's so real it affects you all day? When I was a child, our house got broken into a number of times. We moved to a new house and it got broken into. And I remember being a little boy, uh, first grade, and you're in a new house and you hear noises and just being terrified. And I had nightmares all the time. And they just and I remember waking up with my heart racing in a cold sweat, afraid that someone had broken into our home. And it just affecting me. The funny thing is I, I, thought, I thought nightmares were the things for children. A few years ago, just within the last five, I started experiencing just some astounding nightmares. And they'd wake me up, and, and I'm just like, terrified. Heart racing, cold sweat. And like you're an adult, right? You're a grown adult. Like you, you comfort children who have nightmares, and now you're having nightmares. And, and I remember having to preach truth to my own heart all day long over something I dreamed that wasn't even real. Nightmares rob you, not just of your rest, but even of your day. Job can't even get any sleep, the mental anguish. We don't know what was the result of the disease afflicting him, the result of not eating right. He's a gaunt man. We don't know if this is a metaphor, but in Job 19.17, he basically says his breath has become a stench to his wife. Now, it could be that he stank. His breath stank that bad. But I got to tell you, just to be honest, Job's already sitting on the ash heap covered in open, weeping sores with maggots. You'd have smelled him before you saw him. So I'm not sure she had to get close enough to smell his breath. So it probably is a metaphor. And the obvious metaphor would be this, because we all know this. When someone reeks, you don't want to go around them. You avoid them. You give them massive distance. You know what, and why would Job indicate his wife? Because the one person left that would be close to him doesn't even want to be near him. The loneliness, like you already feel alone. It's like how much worse can it get to even have that aloneness emphasized, I can't be around you anymore. There are many commentators that are convinced that, that Job's wife ultimately leaves him because we know at the end of the book of Job he has another 10 kids. And there are many that believe because of her statement here and what happens later that she must have abandoned we, we don't know. The closest you get, that's guesswork. We do know this in the deepest depths of his sorrow, his own wife didn't want to be near him or spend time with him. Particularly painful to Job in Job 21, 5-6, through six, is that he remembered what it was like to be healthy, acceptable, and respected. Look at me and be appalled. Lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. What's worse, never having health, wealth, and prosperity or having it and losing it? Emotionally, I don't, I don't know that you can compare the hurts. I do know one guy speaking who had it and had lost everything it was just another part of the trial and it was another part of the suffering but it's not just physical and mental wounds there's new relational wounds you might remember from when we started into job job was a pursuer of justice job cared for the widow and the orphan job helped strangers and the impoverished job was influential in the community people would hear somebody else having a problem and they know Job doesn't even know him, and they would bring to Job somebody else at a distance problem, and Job would investigate it and go help these people. That's who Job was. Job was not fat cat billionaire sitting uh, safely on his yacht, not interacting with anybody. Job was not hiding all of his resources in hedge funds and, and offshore accounts. Job used his presence, his health, his power, his influence to care for others. Where are they? You ever suffered and your phone goes silent? No one, like, you, you go check the doorbell just to make sure it ain't broke. You assume the mailman must have skipped your house because there's no note. Job has been completely and utterly abandoned is there nobody to help bind up his wounds is there no one to apply ointment is there no one even to make him clothes later in job he has to sew his own sackcloth together to wear no one to bring him food and water it feels like quite frankly that job lived in a land surrounded by the most ungrateful people alive and i think there's two truths for us there first of all It's astoundingly uncomfortable to be with suffering people. They cry. They're in pain. We can't fix the situation. Often we convince ourselves that if we can't fix it, then we're of no help. Early on doing counseling, getting a degree in counseling, doing counseling, I grew up with all brothers, so I was not well acquainted with, with crying women. I just wasn't. Just wasn't, right? I'm, I was naive and stupid, right? It's, it's a me problem. I'm just owning that. And, then, and I remember way back, I'm, I'm in seminary working with classes, and um, this couple came, and hey, can we get some, some help? So I mean, we're like 45 seconds into this counseling session, and she's like in ugly cry mode. Like the, <laughs> like, and I'm like, I don't even know what to do with this. And I remember there was a real part of me at that point that I didn't want to ask any more hard questions or say any more tough things because I was real uncomfortable with people who cried. And then over the years, just spending time with people, and I just want you to know, it has never yet gotten easy. Being with people who are broken and grieving and suffering is not easy. It isn't, particularly when you can't fix the problem. There's no pill to tell them to take. There's no shot to give them. There's no verse you can read. Uh, you know, All things are working together for good for those that love God and his kingdom. Oh, my word, that's amazing. Now I'm free from my sorrow. You can't just reach into them, grab the grief, and pull it out. And the temptation, because it's so uncomfortable to be with suffering people and grieving people, and that you can't fix their grief, the answer all too often for many people, including Christians, and this should never be the answer for us then, is to avoid them. To think that somehow our presence alone makes it worse. I had somebody tell me one time, they, when I was going through a season of grief, they said, I, I, just, I feel bad, I haven't said anything that helpful. And I said, "But you were here, you've cried with me. That's enough." And I think the funny thing, the ironic thing is, there are many people who've suffered and grieved, and you start to think, but my grief isn't the same kind of grief, so I must not be able to be a help. I haven't lost a spouse or a child or or a job, or had that kind of health news, and so I don't know what to say. But the reality is, listen to me now, if you've walked this globe, and you are Christ's child, you have experienced grief and suffering, and so in the book of Romans, and in the book of Corinthians, when he calls us to weep with those that weep, notice he doesn't say weep with those that weep, and give them the answer that takes away their weeping. It's presence. It's affectionate love, and Job gets none of that. His friends will show up for a week, but hang on, because they got lots of messed up stuff to say. Job is alone and abandoned. And so I think, first of all, it's astoundingly uncomfortable to be with suffering people. I think, second, second the introduction of Job's wife is provided by the narrator to give us some insight into how these people viewed him and why they stayed away from him. The introduction of the friends is going to give us the other perspective. Now, their perspective is going to dominate the rest of the book, so we'll spend a lot of time with them. I'll just mention it here. The suffering is Job's fault, and so there's some sin, known or unknown, and so the way I can help him is to help him fix the sin. Fix the sin, that'll fix the suffering. This is the only time Job's wife shows up in the book, though, and her words are not kind or helpful. We don't want to read too much into what she says here, but we want to understand its value and its context. Now, Job's wife has suffered all the same losses as Job, including all ten of her children killed. We don't know how much time has passed between the first assault by Satan and this one. They've lost all standing. They have lost all respect. They have lost all their money. They, most importantly, have lost all their children. What she says is important, though, for this huge reason. She acknowledges his integrity. Why do you stick to your integrity? She believes on some level this is unfair for Job to experience this. The woman closest to him, the person who knows him best, doesn't believe Job has done anything to deserve this. yet, this new situation must have been stunning to her. We could easily picture Job and his wife holding each other, weeping, unable to get through their day, not eating, they don't want to eat, not sleeping, they don't want to sleep. And then one morning Job wakes up and he has these boils all over his body and she doesn't. The obvious temptation though at this point, every sign at this point, points that Job is the problem. And so in that moment of her convinced, why doesn't she have the boils? And Job does. She now believes on some level. Job has earned this. And this this picture of him trusting God. God gave and God's taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, is a is just hypocrisy it's a joke and so she gives voice to what satan predict predicted the response would be so what she does for us in the narrator's world as he's telling us the story is job's wife does what satan says listen now people will do who love god for what he gives them rather than for who he is This matches the parable of the four soils. When Jesus talks about you'll sow the seed and different will spring up, there's four different kinds of soils, but one will spring up and when things get hard, they fade away. They love the gifts, not the giver. And that's what she gives voice to. Curse God and die is a way of saying you served God for nothing. And so Job's response is absolutely shocking trust in the providence and plan of God at this new betrayal. It's covered in boils. Like, I don't know about you. Like, if I got a headache, like a, a serious headache, I don't do man flu, right? Like, like the wimpy stuff. But, but if I got a serious like raging headache, uh, sinus infection, something like that, I want a little sympathy from my Beth Ann, right? I want a little bit of a, can I get you some Dimetap? Can I get you some stuff? Do you need a cup of, uh, a cup of chicken broth? I want, some, I want some care, right? Like, I'm wrecked. And the care she provides, this this wife, is more condemnation. And so for Job to respond rightly, in the spirit, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? That's like gripping trust on God that blows my mind. How is that possible? And that just takes us then to this grip of trust. How does Job respond with such trust in God? It's real. It's sincere. It's deeply felt. Uh, We have the narrator's verdict once again. Job does not sin in this response. There are three things that are cross-carryingly painful. Yea, four that seem too much for my journey. Being generous to the ungrateful. Maintaining a forgiving spirit toward the unrepentant. Staying fervent in pursuing Christ over a long time and clinging to trust in inexplicable pain. How does he do it? First of all, because he's actually held by God's safe hand. Job is the first book. There's so much more to come in God's progressive revelation of himself. We learn more about God's plans. We learn about his relationship with his children. We learn things like that we forgive because we've been forgiven. We love because we've been loved. We're generous because we've been made joint heirs with Christ. We persist in pursuing Christ because he chased us down and made us his own with new desires and a new nature. And we hold on to God. Listen now. We hold on to God in deep trust despite puzzling pain. Because He holds us fast. David knew this in Psalm 63. Listen again. Darren read this this morning. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My trust in God and my clinging grip is predicated. It's preceded by. It's empowered by God holding me. And the confidence I have it's not in my weak and feeble heart because my heart is prone to wander in the flesh. But it's in God's empowered grip upon my very soul. When I worked at camp, we had a 30-foot-high climbing tower. <laughs> and uh, one of my jobs was to belay kids as they climbed this tower and, and climbing wall, and it was so fun. And, and the hardest course had four courses. The hardest course had a box. And so to climb around this box, you literally had to hang upside down and get around it. And you'd have very inexperienced climbers or, or weaker people. And when they were, you would hold that belaying rope really taut, like honestly, um, so strong that if I wanted to, I could actually pull them up the wall. Right? And so you'd have these kids and they'd, they'd get under the box and then their legs would be swinging free. And so they're supposedly now holding their entirety of their body weight by their hands. And most of them could, simply could not do that. There are some athletic kids that could, for sure, but most could not. And the only way they were there is if I held the rope tight. If I gave them a little slack, boom, they fell right off. Right? But if somebody was an experienced climber, you, I would give them lots of slack. And I'll never forget we had this one guy, and he scrambling. He, he, he may have been Peter Parker, man. The kid is scrambling up the wall. He gets to the box, and I had, there was a loop of rope to his harness. I mean, he, if he falls, he's going to fall a solid five to eight feet. It's not going to be a comfortable experience, but I wanted him to try. And he got there, and I saw this kid, and it was amazing. He did one pull-up, did another one, and when he let down that time, he pulled himself up with such strength. He launched himself into the air. And I'm like, who is this kid? Right? And he missed. Mm -hmm. Boom! There was a wail of grief. And throughout the week, I would belay this kid every time. And I'm like, I'd always want to do it. And by the end of the week, he launched himself, grabbed it, made it to the top and rang the bell. His grip... Had increased even in the week. His confidence had, in- had increased. The fear was gone because he knew even if he missed, even when he couldn't hold on, he was held and he was safe. Wasn't his power, wasn't his strength, wasn't his ability at that moment. All of his trust was sourced in something else. Now, the truth then is this. We learn, the psalmist gets it. Paul will tell this later, that we are held by God. If you are God's, you are held. Now, I just want to pause this moment and say not everyone is. Not everyone is held by God. That trusting relationship, that being held fast by God, is for those that have turned from trusting themselves and turned to Christ. It's people that have turned from their sin, turned from their supposed goodness, turned to faith in Christ. Job responds in trust. You and I can respond in trust because he and we are held by God's hand. But hear me right and hear me now. If you have not repented of your sin, turn from your sin and put your faith in him alone. If you think it relies on your grip, watch out because your fall will be great and devastating. The confidence we have is that we are owned by him. But then I do want to tell you, strengthen your hand. Paul helps us more with this in this beautiful relationship when he talks about his own trials in 2 Timothy 4.17. He says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Who is the lion there? He wasn't the lion, Daniel. He is talking about Satan who roams this earth. And he says, God strengthened my grip, so I'm held, but God is doing an active work in me to actually help me grip him tighter. I love that image. There's a unique strengthening of God to trust, even when, we, when we would fail I want to call you to trust God's hold on you, but also to realize that he is strengthening our trust in him. We must rest in his care even while his call is to grow stronger in our grip of trust. How can you do that? I'm going to give you three practical ways and we'll be done. And here's my challenge. Pick one of them. Pick one. I don't ever want to overwhelm grieving, sorrowing people. Some of you are grieving and sorrowing, and so too much is just too much. And so let me give you, just pick one. I'm going to give you three, though. Number one, remind your heart of trust this is what i want to challenge you to do write dictate or record your testimony of salvation it's the first moment of trust in your walk. Now, listen, for some of you, it am going to be very clear. For some of you, you could actually say, man, I just remember mine. I remember when I was nine years of, old, nine years of age, terrified out of my brain. Uh, they just showed the Thief in the Night movie. You're like, ah, I'm going to die. Trumpet's going to sound. I'm going to be left behind. I'm beheaded. I'm going to die. And I need Jesus. I would heard the gospel tons of times, tons of times, tons of times. Nine years of age, waited desperately Sunday night to literally run down the aisle because I thought that's what you had to do. And, fell on my knees. But I remember what it was is my eyes were now opened. I wasn't a good person. I wasn't a good kid. I was a sinner who desperately needed Jesus. I couldn't fix myself. God, would you save me? I'm going to follow you. And so maybe yours is, is that, right? Something similar. But maybe for some of you, it's been a progression over time. Now, we know theologically there was a point in time you were converted, but maybe you can't point to this, I don't really care. And it's not actually what's important. What's important is that you can look back in your life and see God has changed me. He's given me new heart, new desires, new loves, new life. And so I chase after God. When you look at my life consistently, I believe and I follow. Not perfectly, but I believe and I follow. Record it, write it out. Don't sit it Now, don't, i say this to you. Don't take lazy man out. Well, I already know it. I'll just think about it in my head. Write it down. Can you be disciplined enough? To strengthen your grip, record it. Voice record, voice text it. I don't care. Get it out. Compel yourself to do the active work. That's one. Secondarily, speak to God and others. Isaiah 30, 15 says this. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. Now, it's, it's a stunning moment. What God was telling Israel was this. They could find strength and rest in being quiet before God and trusting. What happens later is they say, no, let's raise up an army we'll deliver ourselves. Now, that quietness is almost an oxymoron. (laughs) Because what he's talking about in your quietness there is stop trying to do it in your own strength. We are quiet before God, not necessarily when we are silent, but when we stop trying to fix our grief and sorrow and suffering. Instead, we talk to him about it. We work through lamenting. We speak of it to others, both to work out what the turmoil is in our hearts, to help reveal struggles, and to ultimately strengthen our trust in God. One massive benefit I personally have discovered recently in this is finding lament psalms to give me insight into my struggles, even as it comforts my heart to see God give voice to my sorrow as I talk through it with somebody else. I saw one this week, uh, read th- was working through a lament psalm with Aaron, and there's this unique moment where it talks, like, it's Psalm 6, and the psalmist, David, is complaining to God about evil people, and at one point, he starts addressing the evil people. The evil people are not there. Like, he's praying to God, and at one point, he goes, so you evil people better watch out because God's on you. Like, they're not there. And I'll be honest with you, I was like, oh, that is so good, I am not insane. Because I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with evil people in my van. And they're not there. It was so comfortable. I'm like, oh, there is a voice to the grief. And so it's so almost comical as I'm realizing it because my heart is being turned to worship to God. Talk to God and others as you process through grief and pain. I'll give you a third one and we'll be done. Make note. My wife and I have learned that God meets us in our sorrow. Sometimes it feels like a flood of soul-nourishing waters, and other times it feels like a trickle. This week, a dear saint in our church texted me this. I'm going to quote, so you're about to get found out, Brenda. Let's call people out. This is what she said. You have been on my mind and in my prayers. May the Lord let you feel his presence and his control over all. May you stay anchored in his word. One thing that gives me comfort is it is not, listen now, not my hold on God, but rather his hand that never lets go of mine. Love you and lifting you and Bethany to God. Now, this is important for you to know. She wrote that Thursday afternoon. The sermon was largely written Wednesday. And so when I say to you, God holds us fast, you tell me why he had a saint in the church preach my sermon to me before I ever preach it to you because God meets us in our sorrow. Make note of when and how you see God meeting you in your grief and loving you with truth. God holds his children fast, but may we strengthen our grip of trust. Father, we thank you for dealing so kindly with us. Father, we thank you again for Job what terrifying things this dear brother have experienced. Lord, I feel like we all owe him a huge hug and a thank you. Father, we know it's you in him and through him. But Father, even in saying that, we also know that, like Paul said, that you bring suffering at times into our lives just so we will have ministry to others. others. Maybe not the only reason, but a large reason. And so Lord, teach us from Job deep theological truths, but also practical outworkings so that we might grow in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.